0: This morning I'll be reading from John 1, 14 and 16 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the, as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. From for his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Katie, very much. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that we are in a time of year that uh, lots of people are open to your message, and I pray that my words today will be twisted by the Holy Spirit to land on hearts and minds in this room in the way that will work for your purposes and your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At its heart, uh, Christmas is about celebrating God coming into the world. We we sing it this way. This is a popular way to put it. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Right? But Jesus' friend, John, the apostle, Uh, writes about it this way. He says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's verse 14 of our scripture today. And it's kind of amazing to me that there isn't a popular Christmas hymn using that line. Maybe it just doesn't have the right ring. Maybe it just doesn't go. I don't know. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Maybe it just, you know, whatever. But, But that line, has so much behind it that we need to spend a little time unpacking what is there because it has a lot to tell us about Christmas. And my hope today is to give you a little glimpse of the incredible power that lies just behind these words. Now, if you're following along in your bulletin, what we're going to do is we're going to chop it in half, okay? So don't get nervous. Uh, I'm only going to go about halfway, and then you'll have to come back next week, and we'll wrap all of this together, and it'll be a nice one little... uh, Uh, Great package. But let's start this way that the word for dwelt, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word behind dwelt is a word that means tent. Tent. Um, Like the musty thing that you get out of your garage and you take camping, right? Or maybe you get it out of storage and you set it up in your backyard because your daughter is having a sleepover or something like that. Uh, It's that canvas or vinyl thing that has screens everywhere and zippers everywhere so that you can keep the bug at, bugs out, but the bugs are never kept out. They're always in there. That, that tent thing, okay? And what, what John writes here is that God came to earth in the person of Jesus and tented among us, just like we would crawl into a tent Jesus crawled into a human body, a baby in a manger, human flesh, so that he could hang out with us. As a matter of fact, the message version of this verse has this to say, Jesus became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's a great phrase. That's a great way to put it, because that's the heart of Christmas. Jesus Christ has taken up residence in a human body. He's moved into our neighborhood so that We can know who God is so that we can see His glory, so that we can be with Him. Now, there's more to it than that. This word tent turns out also to be the same word that is used to refer to a tent in the Old Testament. It's a tent that God had Moses set up so that God could dwell on the earth with His people. And this tent was called the tabernacle. It was the tent of God. And so this verse here in John could also be read this way, that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and God the Son became a man. He pitched an earthly tent of human flesh. He lived inside a human body like someone who would live in a tent, and he did that in order to dwell with us, among us, in our neighborhood, and the idea of the tent, that idea of the Old Testament tabernacle where God came and dwelled with his people, that's what we need to explore a little bit because because at the end of the day, nobody wants to be alone. One of the great fears at holiday time, especially Christmas time, that people have is being alone. Maybe you have some family members that aren't here and you're worried. You're, I don't know who I'm going to hang out with this Christmas. I don't want to be alone. And in the Old Testament, when God came to Abraham, he promised Abraham, I will be your God. I will be with you. And I will be the God for all of your descendants. And I will always be with you. And the tabernacle where God came to dwell with his people was his way of showing that his people were not alone. The tabernacle shows that God's people, that they are not alone. Now, wouldn't that be great to know that? What better way to show that God was with them, that they weren't alone, than to live in a tent right in the middle of the camp where they were all uh, uh, camping? I, I have a picture here of the tabernacle. is kind of dark. I'm sorry about that. But this is the tabernacle in the middle of the camp of, of the Israelites that could have been up to about 2 million people. And God's tent is right in the middle. And if any Israelite ever wondered if God was still there while they were endlessly wandering through the desert, all they had to do was look over a few tents to the middle camp and they saw God camping right beside them. And the tabernacle was their way of connecting with God. They knew that his presence was in the tent and that was, it was always set up in the center of their community. And as they traveled, God's presence would travel with them and he was always there so that they would never be alone. Now, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great to be able to connect with God like that? To be able to look over a few campsites or maybe a down, a few houses down your street and see, oh, that's where God lives. That's where God is. The tabernacle was designed so that God's people could meet him there. And we think, oh, great, good for them. But what about us? How do we get to know that God is beside us? How do we get to know that God is moving wherever we move? How do we get to access this God of creation? How do we get to be in on that original promise that God said, I will be your God and I will always be with you? How do we know that? How do we know that He is with us? And what I want to suggest today is that this tent... In the Old Testament, this tabernacle has a lot to teach us about what it means that Jesus was made flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus tabernacled among us. And there's an explicit connection between the two things. We could say it this way, that Jesus is the tabernacle of God. Jesus is the tabernacle of God. And to fully understand what that means, what we have to do is a little digging Into what that first tabernacle was like and what it meant, and it's pretty uh, fascinating stuff. And so, let me take you back to the book of Exodus. And we find there in the book of Exodus that the people of Israel have just escaped Egypt. They've escaped Pharaoh. They've uh, gotten out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They got past Pharaoh's army. And they find themselves in the middle of the desert surrounding a mountain. It's called Mount Sinai, and Moses, the leader of the Israelites, goes up on the top of the mountain, and the people stay below. And while he is at the top of the mountain, he meets with God, and God gives him 10 rules. I think uh, while he was up there, he took a selfie. I think we have that. That's, that's that. Um, by the way, for those of you who are under you know, 25 or maybe 40, Uh, That guy's name's Charlton Heston. He was kind of a big deal way back. Okay, all right. Um, And while we're here, Moses is at the top of the mountain, and we would be really tempted, especially if we were trying to kind of sweep belief underneath the rug. We would be really tempted to look at this story and say, oh, my goodness, you're telling me that one guy, one guy went up the mountain and said he talked to God And brought the tablets back down and said, this is what God says. How is that different from a guy in a cave saying that he talked to God? How is that different from a guy who went to his backyard in upstate New York in the 1800s and said that the angels told him where the gold plates were and he talked to God? How is that different? And I want to point out to you, it is extremely different. Because while Moses is at the top of the mountain. There are two million people at the bottom. And two million Israelites are looking up, and they're seeing what God is doing at the top of the mountain. They see his presence coming down. They see the flames and the thunder and the lightning. They hear his booming voice They understood, and so this was not one guy, one crazy guy saying he had talked to God. This was a community of people understanding that God was with them and that he was their God and that he would always go wherever they went. He was making good on his promises. And so it's completely different. Now, while Moses is up there getting the Ten Commandments, God also gave him something else. God gave him a blueprint. It's a blueprint for a building. He says, Moses, I want you to be a general contractor kind of thing, and I want you to be in charge of this project. And the project is, I want you to build a portable building that I will live in. It's called the tabernacle. And in Exodus chapter 25, verse 9, we get a specific uh, thing that, said, that God said to Moses. He says, make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So the project was to be done exactly like God wanted because God designed it himself and God wanted Moses to put this dwelling place together exactly like it was designed because God wanted to teach his people something even with the way this building was designed and constructed. He wanted to teach them about his character, what it means to have a relationship with him, about how he was to be worshipped, all of those things, uh, this structure, the tabernacle, communicated to the people. And it communicated, most of all, that they were not alone, that God was in the middle of his people, living with them, living among them. And so the thumbnail uh, picture of the tabernacle, I think I have a picture here, uh, better one. And this is an artist rendering of the tabernacle. Go, go back one. Yeah, stay on that, that big one. And thank you. And um, it, the tabernacle lived in the middle of the camp of Israel, and it was a tent approximately 15 feet wide by 45 feet long. It's that little thing in the bigger square. And so if you think about a single wide mobile home cut in half, that's about the size of the tabernacle. And it was surrounded by a tall fence that was made up of fabric. And that fence comprised about 10,000 square feet. So if you can imagine four tennis courts uh, lined up, uh, that's about the size of the tabernacle and all of its area. And in the courtyard outside of the tabernacle, there was a bronze altar for making sacrifices. There was a large basin for ceremonial cleansing. The tabernacle itself, go, go to the next picture now, was di- was divided into two rooms. This is kind of cut away of that tabernacle in the middle. And it's a dark picture, but there's a curtain there in about, the, uh, about two-thirds of the way down. And in this first room, there would have been... A uh, golden lampstand that was called the holy place. There would have been an altar for incense, and then there would have been a table for bread. And then in the back third, that was called the holy of holies. It was called the most holy place, and that was the sacred space that contained only one item the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where we have to start our digging because that's where God starts. When God tells Moses how to construct his tabernacle, the first instructions that he gives are about this. Thing called the ark. God start, he doesn't start with the tent. He doesn't start with the, the surroundings or the other pieces of furniture. He starts with the, the thing that was supposed to be the center of everything because the ark is, in fact, the most important thing in the whole tabernacle. It was the exact place where God would descend to dwell with his people, which was the purpose of the whole building. And so the center of God's presence is the tabernacle and the ark, the ark. By starting with the ark, God is working from the inside out. He's putting first things first because his presence is always first. And so, um, I have a picture of the ark. Let's start there. And basically, the ark is uh, just a plain, ordinary wooden box to start out. It's a little smaller than four feet long by three feet wide by three feet high. So if you could imagine uh, maybe a similar in size to a desk that you might have in your room or your office, it was that kind of thing. The design was pretty simple, but it did have some ornamentation. There was a molding around the top, and the whole thing would have been covered in purest gold. Uh, it's possible that thick plates of gold were nailed in place all around the box, and the bottom, uh, on each corner, there were four legs and four feet to keep the the ark off of the ground. And then soldered to those legs were little rings. Uh, there were four rings, two on each side, and these rings were for. Uh, the first of the very special things that we need to talk about and we need to direct our attention to, and that is uh, poles. <laughs> Sounds very simple, right? Um, the ark is a box with rings for poles. That's what it is. And, But don't let that simple language fool you because there's a lot going on here. There are two poles, one on each side, and they rested Uh, in rings, and they were used for carrying the ark. And whenever the Israelites were on the move, traveling from one place to another, the priests would lift the poles, and they would carry the ark on their shoulders. And God commanded this. He said, Moses, I want you to tell the priest never to remove the poles from the ark. Now, that, that seems kind of like a minor detail, but it's super, super important because lots of other things in the tabernacle had poles for carrying. And this is the only thing with poles for carrying that God said, don't ever take those poles out of their rings. Why? Well, the answer is pretty obvious and pretty simple if you are an Indiana Jones fan. If you're a Raiders of the Lost Ark person, then you know exactly why the poles were supposed to be left in the Ark. Why? Because if you touched the Ark, you would have your face melted off, right, in a Steven Spielberg kind of way. No, maybe not, but you would for sure die. Yes, you're right. You would die. And so this is not some kind of magic box. This is, this is the place where God was. And just like no one can ever see God and live, no one can even touch the place where he dwells and live. And so the priests would use the poles so they wouldn't touch the ark and die, and the poles stayed in place at all times. Now, you might recall uh, along this line an event later in the history of Israel where the ark is being transported to Jerusalem. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and King David decides that the ark needs to be in Jerusalem, and so he's going to move it. And the problem is that the priests didn't, see, didn't feel like they needed to carry it by its poles the whole way. And so what they did was they loaded it into an ox cart and they smacked the ox and they began driving away. And a guy named Uzzah, he was a priest, he was driving, he was steering the cart. And somewhere on the journey, the cart hit a pothole and the oxen kind of stumbled and the, the cart began to tilt and the ark began to tilt that was in the cart And Uzzah saw this, and he reached back to steady the ark with his hand, and he was successful in that. The ark didn't go anywhere, and it it was all good, and he was a hero, except he touched the ark. That's not good, right? And the text says that God struck him down, and he died right there beside the ark, and they had to get a new driver, and, you know, for the rest of the trip, it was a whole ordeal. And maybe you're like me. I read an event like that, and I, there's a whole host of questions that come to my brain. And the, the most important question is this, why in the world would God kill a guy like this for doing what I feel like is kind of a pretty heroic thing, Right? He was protecting the ark of God. Why would he strike this guy down? And the answer is that there's a message that God is sending here. And the message is this. It would have been better, Uzzah, for the ark to touch the ground than for it to touch you. In other words, the dirt beneath the ark is more holy than than you are. That's an important message to us. And the polls give us that message, that God is holy, that we are not holy. Everything associated with God is holy, His name and His word and His worship, and we should never treat the things of God carelessly because they are holy. We as Christians always carry within us the presence of God, and so everywhere we go, We take God with us. We are to honor his name, hear his word, revere his worship. Make sure you treat as holy the things that are holy. On top of the ark, God said, I want cherubim made out of hammered gold. And so the ark ark is a box with cherubim. All right? Now, cherubim are special angels. They're mentioned about a 100 times just in the Old Testament. And the first appearance of cherubim is in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have just been kicked out of the garden. And the cherubim are in charge of guarding the way back to the tree of life so that Adam and Eve can never go back into the Garden of Eden and eat from the tree of life. And so that gives us a picture of the function of cherubim, because the angels that God put there were cherubim. And their function is to guard things. Other angels in Scripture might be messengers, but not cherubim. Cherubim always remain in God's presence, and they guard it. And their, their job is to deny entry to anything that might make a holy place or the, the throne of God unholy. And so we could say it this way, that they are palace guards for the king of kings, or we could say it this way, they are bouncers in the throne room of God. And we, when we think of cherubim, we don't really have that picture, do we? We think of cherubs and what immediately comes to your mind? Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day does, right? And we, we think of little pudgy baby-faced angels with rosy cheeks that are shooting arrows with little plungers on the end of them, right? Um, and, and that's not what we read in the Bible at all. Oh my goodness, the picture is anything but that. These are serious guard angels that are ripped, that you don't mess with, okay? And they are guarding the presence and the holiness of God, and so they should be that way. We get a description in Ezekiel. Ezekiel describes cherubim in his vision. He says that they have the appearance of a man, but they have multiple faces, multiple faces of other creatures. Um, they have two wings. They their appearance, their very appearance, is like burning of coals or fire, and they are like or like torches. Um, fire seems to move back and forth between them uh, and lightning flashes from them like it would flash from the sky. Uh, We also learn what the psalmist says. He says in uh, Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Uh, The psalmist in in Psalm 80 says the same thing. He says, hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim. King Hezekiah, when he would pray in Second Kings, prayed this way, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the what? Cherubim. cherubim. Yeah. You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. And the message that we get from all of those things is, number one, that that's what's going on in heaven. In God's throne room, as he sits on his throne, he is surrounded by these guard angels called cherubim. And the other thing that we uh, learn from this is that that's not a bad title for God. God, you who are encircled by cherubim, enthroned by cherubim, maybe that's not a a bad way to pray when we address God, that he is the one enthroned between cherubim the cherubim. Some uh, people will say, just to start a prayer, Heavenly Father, or Father God. I have a good friend that says, King Jesus, for every time he starts a prayer. he, He recognizes Jesus as King, right? And maybe this would be a great way for us to start our prayers. Oh God, who is enthroned between the cherubim, would you be with us today? What a great title for God. And that heavenly reality of God on his throne and surrounded by cherubim is what is to be recreated on top of the ark. God says to Moses, I want you to build cherubs. I want you to hammer them out of gold, and their wings are to be outstretched and touching, protecting The ark, and the gold figures there represent these burning angels, these cherubim that flash like lightning beneath God's throne in heaven, and they are guarding something even on the ark. What is it? Well, it's actually an empty space. The ark is a box with empty space above it. And that empty space is the space that will be filled with God's presence when he comes down. And it's, it's interesting and right that God did not tell Moses to make any representation of his divine being. Anything like that would have gone against what he told uh, Moses in the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments he gave in Exodus chapter 20 on the tablets that Moses brought down. Uh, number two was, don't make any form of me. Don't make a graven image of me. You can't you can't paint me. You can't take a picture of me. You can't form me in any fashion. I, I am not to be ha- have an image of any kind made of me because I'm beyond all of that. You can't capture me in one image. And so the empty space is where God showed up. The empty space is being guarded by his cherubs. And that's where Moses would meet with God. And so the ark is a picture on earth of what is happening in heaven. And, and Moses would go there and he would meet with God. Another word for the uh, tabernacle in the Old Testament is the tent of meeting. And that's where God uh, would meet with Moses. And his presence was there over the ark, inside the Holy of Holies. And that's what the tabernacle was all about, gaining access, God. It was about God coming down and telling his people, you are not alone. I am here with you. Now let's go back to John chapter 1. What was was it? How did it read? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. In the Old Testament, God would come down and dwell with his people, but there was still this massive separation. Only one guy and maybe a priest once a year. Moses and maybe the high priest would get to go into the Holy of Holies, and they would meet with God, but everybody else was out of luck. They knew that God's presence was in there, but but they were separated. There was this massive separation. And God knew that he had to do something about that. And so the gospel is that he himself came to earth in the form of a baby, in the form of an infant in the manger. He stripped away all of his power. He became flesh like us. He moved into our neighborhood so that we could meet with him, so that we could see him as he is in the person of Jesus. There was no question that he loved her. He was absolutely bedazzled by her surprising really because she was plain maybe even well to someone else perhaps disappointing but then he himself was a poor man who didn't have even two coins to rub together he wasn't especially handsome either but he was good he was a good and he was a godly man and he swept her off her feet and he won her heart that's the end of the story And it's kind of an ordinary story until you hear the first part of the story. And as the band comes, I want to read you that first part of the story. It's a story told by Soren Kierkegaard, and it begins this way. Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. King on a throne, but he loves a humble maiden. He was a great king, and he could have had whatever he wanted, Every statesman feared his wrath. Every foreign state trembled before his power. They would have all sent ambassadors to the wedding. And he realized that if he asked his courtiers, they would say, Your Majesty, you're about to confer upon this maiden a favor upon which the maiden can never be sufficiently grateful for her whole life long. And that was the problem even if she wanted to come with him, even if she wanted to be his wife, he would never know for certain if she would have loved him for himself or just because he was king. And so he wrestled with his troubled thoughts alone. Finally, he decided this. If she could not come up to his high station and be sure to love him freely, then he must descend to hers. And he must descend stripped of his royal power and wealth. For only then would he know if his beloved loved him freely as equal. And so he laid aside all his power, all of his privileges, and came to her as her equal to win her love. And there was no question that he loved her. He was absolutely bedazzled by her. Surprising, really, because she was plain, maybe even well to someone else, perhaps, disappointing. But then he himself was a poor man who didn't have even two coins to rub together. He wasn't especially handsome either, but he was good, a good and godly man. And he swept her off her feet and won her heart. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God stripped himself of all of his power, all of his wealth, all of his might out from the protection of the cherubim, guarding him, all of his holiness, and he came into a human form so that he could move into our neighborhood so that we could love him, not because he twisted our arms to but because we saw love and sacrifice in him And indeed we did. And indeed we do love him. He has captured our hearts. Father, I thank you that you are the one enthroned, surrounded by the cherubim. And yet that holiness that separates us from you is overcome because you have chosen to take on flesh and be one of us. And now we see you in all of your glory when we look at Jesus. Father, this Christmas season, may we understand what Jesus really did for us. That he came in grace and truth that we may have life help us to find that life in this great sacrifice. In his name we pray, amen. I'd like you to stand and um, we're going to sing these words, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. It's a great Christmas hymn, right? But we could also say it individually, come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom me. Cause I need a way to see who God really is. And Jesus is that only way. You come.